This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is a message that goes uh, well with uh, where we are where we were last week, where we're headed forward. Uh, the, the message last week was beginning to enunciate the fact that we are starting anew as a church. Our entire history up to this point has been built out of a collegiate environment. And so it's funny not having our, our students here because ever since we started eight years ago, this was a campus church or a student church and we've transitioned into a local church body. And that's pretty special. And it's actually been rather a uh, challenging road to hoe because when you start out a certain way with a certain identity, it's rather difficult to slough that off and to move forward with something different. But it's sort of like the caterpillar under the butterfly. I guess we've been sort of in a chrysalis over these past few years. And I feel like God is calling us as a local body to move forward with greater strength. And so last week... I talked about the original 11 things that I set before us as a body uh, to say this is what I would desire our church to look like. If we were to break it down, this is what our church should showcase. And so there were 11 things in that list. The irony of it should be felt today. Uh, The name of this message is The Return of the Mighty Eleven. Now, those of you that have ever heard me teach on Isaiah 3 would you'd, you'd sort of catch something it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, this might sound familiar. There's 11 things in Isaiah 3. It's a time of judgment on the nation of Israel, and there are 11 things that are removed from the land of Israel as a form of judgment. Most of us think of judgment as things like famine and uh, natural disasters and war, which they are, but they are secondary or, or tertiary dimensions of judgment. The primary form of judgment is that the strength of the land is removed. Or maybe I should say it this way. The mighty 11 leave. And there is an abandonment of the land of that which is strong. True masculine strength is removed from the land. And when men depart, when the role of men disappears, suddenly the nation is rife for judgment. We have no defense. And so it's interesting because if I were to say, what would be a good description of what has taken place in our country? It is not a good thing when true manhood becomes politically incorrect. And to stand strong as a godly man is literally looked at as one of the most despicable things. So we just happen to be living in a country where these 11 things are disappearing. And it's a first sign of the backlash, you could say, that we are feeling in this country because of departing from truth. You see, God doesn't, when we think of God bringing judgment, we oftentimes misconstrue how God works. Because you could say it that way, 
But also when we depart from God's ways, what we do is we open up the door for the devil to come in and wreak havoc in our life. The illustration I have used for my kids a lot is I have a ba- we have a backsliding door. It's negative 10 degrees out there and, and, uh, and blowing uh, snow. And so, hey, as long as we remain in this house and we shut the door and we live according to the rules of a good home, guess what? We're safe and we can sleep well tonight. However, if I open that backsliding door and I say, hey, I can open it if I want, well, then that storm is going to end up in my living room. And that's what's happened in our country in many regards. We've opened up the door to darkness and we've said, hey, we'll do as we want And that which is meant to be outside a God-fearing nation is actually come inside a God-fearing nation. So the return of the mighty 11, a vision for the church at Ellerslie. The word return suggests that something has gone away, and indeed it has. The yearning for the returning, little uh, poetry there for you, uh, paraphrased from a footnote in Martyr's Mirror. So if any of you have ever gone through a semester at Ellerslie, there's a banquet night that we always start out with. It's a really fun night. And so you get dressed up and you come in and the guys will come to the stage first. So it's cleaned off and there will be all the men from the, the semester that will come onto the stage. And I usually am standing somewhere around right here facing this direction. We have, I think, the, the curtains pulled back so you have the lake out back. It's pretty cool. Pretty uh, uh, noble environments, and the guys, you know, have no idea what to expect. I mean, they were specially invited in. They're dressed in suits, ties. Most of them have never been in one in their entire life, so the whole thing's a little awkward. And I give them a man talk. I tell them the environment they're in. I say, I don't care if you haven't lived like this before. You're on this campus. This is the way we behave here. We behave as men. And it is, I mean, I get stirred every time. I mean, it just stirs me to just to call men forth, to rise up, to do something different with this body than they have been is what every single one of us yearns for. And so that's how we start out a semester. And then that night, I mean, we have tables out here, all finely decorated. It's like this formal environment. And I give a message that night. I don't know what it's called. It's just the banquet message. But it's like a return of majesty. It's the return of the rack of the antlers. If you, any of you have ever heard about the Irish elk, that's sort of what comes out. It's a vision for what we are desiring to see return to Christianity. I'm going to give you a version of that for our church. See, we, that's what we need as a church. This isn't just a training program where you're coming for 12 weeks and then going home. We're here. We're a body, and I say we need a vision. We're a body that needs to know what we're doing. And so that's what I'm going to give. Uh, so this is paraphrased from a footnote in Martyr's Mirror. I give this on banquet night. And this is one of the quotes that has greatly impacted the course of my life. I read this originally, oh, I mean, we're going back 25, 26 years ago. After the, so this is a book, Martyr's Mirror, for those of you that don't know. It's a book written in the 1500s. Many of you have heard, heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is like that. It's just a different book, and it's about this thick, and I'm not exaggerating. And it has little footnotes that add, you have to read the book and read the footnotes. The footnotes are almost as more intriguing. It's like, oh, oh that's, that's, that's really good. This is a footnote. After the ascension of Christ, it was often noted by the saints that the apostle Peter would cry. When a cock would crow, it often moved the apostle to tears. But there were other times, too, when for no apparent reason the big-framed fisherman would sob. One day, a young believer dared to approach the mighty man of God and ask the question that was on everyone's heart. Peter, why do you cry? The apostle looked at the young man and said, 
desiderio domini. Peter's actual words were not Latin, but this is how history has preserved his famed utterance. This is the grief-strained words that have passed down through Christian history and have moved so many that have read them. For in English, the phrase desiderio domini means because I dearly long for my Lord. That one statement, I remember reading it over and over and over again, desiderio domini. And I had one thought going through my own soul. Am I crying because I so desperately want to be with Jesus? And I had to admit, no, I'm not. But I also had to admit that I want it. Whatever Peter had, I need. I need that type of longing for Jesus. Peter had walked with Jesus. He had lived with Jesus. He had witnessed up close and personal the beauty, the majesty of Jesus Christ. And now that majesty had ascended. And more than anything, he wanted to be with Jesus. I have the privilege in and through the word of God via the Holy Spirit to encounter, though it be different than what the apostle Peter encountered, something similar. Something that is meant to ravish my own soul and change my own heart and cause me to see something that is beyond this natural realm. To cause me to long to say, oh, to be with Jesus. I want that. So through years, I mean, even to this day, at the end of my journal entries, I will oftentimes write two Latin words, desiderio domini. And it's not always been because I felt it. That was my prayer saying, God, build this in me. I want to long for you the way Peter longed for you. Desiderio domini. The desiderio, the desire, the deep, Longing, Domini means Lord, the deep longing for the Lord, the ache that marks the twice born. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that we as Christians are meant to have this desiderio. This is meant to hallmark us. In other words, separate the sheep from the goats. It's the ones that don't have it and the ones that do. In other words, the desiderio seems to be something that marks, that is a is a harbinger of the real transformation. It's, it's the statement from our life that declares this life knows Jesus. If you have seen Jesus, how could you not, desiderio? So in our environment over the years, now if you've been in the church, you've been in the, in the training, we have all sorts of various ways that I've articulated this longing, this return. I have a desire to see something return. What is that something? That something very, very succinctly and simply is the majesty of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. It's desiderio domini. I want to see Jesus return. I want to be with him. I want to be where his majesty is, fully expressed, without any curtain blocking the view of the lake. I want to see the fullness of who he is. So we have various ways of saying this. The ache for the return of the Irish elk. That came out, what was that, seven years ago? in a message called Majesty Lost. And it was talking about the Irish elk, which stand 10 feet at the brow, and they have a rack of antlers on top of their head that goes up another five feet, and it spans 12 and a half feet wide. It's just massive, 15 feet tall, and it's like, that's true Christianity. We got these Estes Park elk, and they're, they're impressive. Don't get me wrong. I'll still pull off to the side of the road and gawk. 
but to see the real thing return to the stage of time. Christians that literally bear the massiveness of Jesus Christ on their brow, that they live it to the fullness. The ache for the return of Hudson Taylor's naming Carmichael's. That's just the way I've always said it. I mean, I named my firstborn son Hudson as a statement. It's like, I want him to be the Irish elk sort of Christian. The kind of men that turn the world on its head. Hudson Taylor changed the course of China and the church in the East. Amy Carmichael, one of the greatest missionaries ever to India. The ache for the return of the mighty terebinth. Terebinth trees in the land of uh, Israel were known as a Gigian. In other words, that was, they were almighty from the beginning. That was the way that the, uh, the people of Israel would describe them. They never saw them planted, and they never saw them die. They were just always there. And they were pictures of God. And these trees were so massive. Typically in the, New Te- or in, I'm sorry, in the Bible, they're translated as oak trees. That doesn't quite say it. Okay, because these trees were 20 feet in circumference. Sometimes up to 24. Could you imagine? And one of them sat in the midst of the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. That's actually what the Valley of Elah means. Valley of the Great Tree. So could you imagine David standing against Goliath and what's standing over Goliath, overshrouding him? We've got a tree that's bigger than Goliath. What should that speak of? The cross, the great tree that overshadows the powers of sin. You see, we want to see that return. That's actually what the ministry of Jesus says it wants to do is return the mighty oaks to the stage of time. That's what we have a passion to see. The ache for the return of ruddy shepherd boys. Ruddy, red. Jesus, when he went to battle on that cross, was red. And we want to go to battle with that same passion, that same determination. Shepherd, lowest position. Going to that battle red, taking the lowest position of humility and being, having faith of a five-year-old, knowing that our God is able to do it. The ache for the return of the bulging left bicep. That's a Dan McConaughey discovery. Uh, studying the ancient bowman from England that it literally it would take about 20 years to train a bowman. 20 years, could you imagine? 20 years, there was no nation that could possibly mimic it. Why? Because they could see the power of the bowman. These bowmen could pull back a bow, and that pull strength could be upwards of 250 pounds. Today, most people wouldn't even believe that was possible. In fact, that's what people have said, that's impossible. Because a bow pull today is, what, 60 pounds? And you usually have help even doing that with all the mechanical things we have today. 250 pounds, they would step into these bows. This arrow would fly like a bullet for 800 yards. It would pierce through a a castle wall and kill guards on the other side. Ah! And you know, when they learned to do this, it was such an athletic endeavor. They trained daily to do this for 20 years. They would have a deformity in their left arm, so it looked like a bulge. And to all the other countries, it must have looked weird. However, to everyone in England, they knew what that bulge meant. That was a man in training. That was a man who could pull the bow, who could fight for our military. You see, are we willing to look funny to the world around us and have a bulging left bicep to bring back the strength of God to this earth? The ache for the return of majesty. Very simply put, what I've said throughout the years, if I can enunciate what moves me more than anything else, it's that. I want to see the return of majesty the return of the bigness of Jesus Christ. So much of the modern contemporary movement of Christianity is trying to make him slick and attractive and cool and hip. However, he comes with a grizzle on his chin, 
with a growl in his soul, with a sword protruding out of his mouth. I want to see the majesty of Jesus return. So I don't know if you're catching the hint. I want us to see the majesty of Jesus return. So very simply put, if we're going to say it the way the Bible says it, the ache for the return of Jesus Christ. Oh, haste the day that my faith will be made sight. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. You notice that almost every great hymn ends with that exact statement, not those exact words, but that exact longing. This is what moves us as the church. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. How can we continue unless we know that you are coming? We have a hope, and it burns inside of us. And that's what we long for more than anything else. What are we longing for? The return of majesty. The return of strength. What is he going to do? He's going to set his feet upon the Mount of Olives. It will break in half. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ah, that's what I long for. Boy, that's an opposite direction. Talk about slamming on the brakes. Passivity. The key operative strength to sin. So as a church, what I desire is the opposite of that. See, passivity is basically the essence of how sin works in our life. So the enemy comes knocking on our door with a temptation. It was kink, kink, kink. And, and we open the door, and it, it's always, it's, a temptation is attractive. If you're passive in your soul, you see, it's a lot to have to slam the door because that temptation's pushing in. It's a lot to resist. It's a lot to say no. It's a lot to close that door and say, in the name of Jesus, this territory is not yours. This territory belongs to Jesus. The only thing that's taking place inside of this living room is what he desires. Passivity just leaves the door unlocked, in fact, cracked. And the devil can come in at will. And as a result, that's the essence of sin. In other words, to show resistance and to say, no, there's a purpose for this life, and it's higher than to be servile to the base elements of this world. I'm not meant to serve my flesh. I'm meant to serve him. And that's activity. Passivity allows, relinquishes territory. But when God gets a hold of a life, it te he teaches us to stand up, to put on armor, to resist. And when we do, our life changes. James 4, 7. To him that knoweth to do good, and does it not, to him it is sin. You see, when you know what you should do, but you don't do it, you sin. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. These are all different translations just to make a point. It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Sometimes we, take, we need repetition before we start grasping things. In other words, it's fairly clear. God makes it abundantly clear how we're supposed to live. And then it's up to us to rise up and say, okay, God, how does that work? Because that's the way I want to live. We as a church can have a vision for what the church is supposed to do in this world. And we can be passive with it and go, well, you know, if God wants to do it, he'll do it. Or we can rise up and say, God, use me. God, use us. Start here. If you're looking for a church that's willing to go into the trenches, that's willing to get uncomfortable, I do not want him to pass over this group. 
Because he's looking right now. And I want him to stop right here and say, hey, how about you guys? Yeah, we're ready. You do know that it will cost you your life, don't you? We've already counted the cost. This is for you and your glory. We understand that it will be challenging. We understand what it comes with. We realize that persecution comes with godliness. We understand this up front. Here, here we are. Take us. You must do something. So in a time like we live, it can be rather challenging to know what to do. Uh, I, I've given the story of the, uh, the, the uh, it was a train full of Jews in the days of uh, uh, Nazism in, I, think, I want to say Holland, I don't remember if it was in Germany or Holland, but the German church was in worshiping God at the time and they had their songs, their organ was playing and the train load of Jews was going by in cattle cars, screaming. And they figured if there was anyone on earth who would stand up and do something, it would be the Christians. And so the Jews screamed and screamed and screamed and screamed. And the German Christians turned up the volume on the pipe organ to drown out the screams. I know that when we hear that, we're disgusted with the German church. However, in America, I would say we are right on the cusp of repeating the travesties of World War II. We are deaf to what God is desiring. We have hardened to so much of the disasters that are taking, around, taking place around us where we no longer feel. And we so quickly turn up the volume in our life of our own personal activity so that we do not need to stare square in the face that which is going on around us. And it's so easy to subside into that mentality instead of rising up and saying, but I'm willing to make it my business. I'm willing to think, what if that was my family down there right now? If I begin to think that, and I begin to think, so if that was my kids that were standing in the way of that, how would I respond now as a father? Because God is a father, and he's a good father. So how should I be appropriating what is taking place in this world around me? You must respond. You must pick a side. You must make a decision. You must choose. 11. So if you have ever studied biblical numbers, 11 is not one of them. 11 is one of these left out numbers. You can go through and, you know, one is, you know, God is one. Uh, two, uh, there's twos all over the Bible. All you have to do is be discipled here at Ellerslie and you'll know everything is in twos. I mean, even the Bible's broken up into two halves. But there's the flesh and the spirit. There's the first and the second. I mean, there's, there's twos everywhere. Uh, three, well, you got the Trinity. That's an easy one. Uh, four, you got four Gospels, right? Uh, five, it's the number, you know, of, of man's digits. Six is, oh, bad, bad number. We don't want to go into that. Uh, seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Nine is the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. Ten, oh, that's the Decalogue. That's the Ten Commandments. That's perfect righteousness. Eleven, skip that. Twelve, the number of disciples, the number of apostles, uh, the number of tribes of, uh, of Israel. I mean, this is, it's eleven. It's just like skipped, right? So as a result, leave it to Eric to bring it up in a message. Eleven, so what's so special about that number? It just needs one more to make it twelve. And 12 is the number that will turn the world upside down. There's something about 11, and that is that it begs one more. It begs one of us to rise up and say, hey, we can't stop with 11, guys. We need to get to 12. 12 is the number of witness. 
12 is the count that God had, and that group of 12 turned the world on its head. Uh, we're needing one more, guys, because we're stuck at 11 here in this message. The return of the 11. Here are the 11 things that my soul bleeds to see return. So if you were going to cut Eric Ludi open, which uh, this is probably not the most pleasant thought, but if you were to see what moves me at the depths of my being, I'm going to give you the list, okay? Because all of us have passions. All of us do. The pastor of this church just happens to have very particular passions, okay? Now, it's highly likely that if this is your home church, that you share in that. Now, you could be visiting and going, no, no, not at all. However, if this is your home church, there's probably a reason why we're knit together, okay? And it could have to do with this list. So I'm going to debut the list here. Here are the 11 things that my soul bleeds to see return. The return of majesty, the rack of glory to the brow of the church, the return of Christ's centricity to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. I want to see Jesus return to the center of every sermon that is given. I'm tired of hearing just about social things, you know, the different political things, philosophical things. Jesus is the only savior. He is the only thing that matters. Let's preach Jesus. The return of Christ's centricity. Centricity means central. The return of Christ's centricity to the academic and spiritual tutelage of our children. We teach math, but we don't teach Jesus. But who invented math? The creator of the heavens and the earth. His name is Jesus Christ. All math reveals Jesus. So if you're going to teach a child properly, you better teach them Jesus and the fact that Jesus created math to reveal his glory. Why learn math any other way? What's the good of it if it's not leading you somewhere? You guys ever heard about the dunces? Uh, John Dunce, who was you know, way back in the uh, 12, 1300s, uh, was considered the smartest man on earth in his generation. Isn't that an ironic statement for one whose last name is Dunce? And uh, in fact, all throughout the Middle Ages, it was considered that this man was likely uh, one of the top two, three most intelligent men ever, or at least of the Middle Ages, right? And so he had a following known as the Dunces, and they, ironically, they wore pointy caps, which is sort of awkward. But so John Dunce himself wore a pointy cap. You know what his pointy cap was? It was like a finger pointing upward. You know what it was pointing at? What he said was the center of all knowledge. And if you want to be smart, if you want to have a true mind that knows how to think, you better know your creator. It pointed towards Jesus. That was what his hat was. It pointed towards Jesus like a finger. It says, there it is. It's not me. It's him. And so all academic training flowed out of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then came the Enlightenment era. And when the Enlightenment era came, it was a diminishment. Hey, God has been holding back on you guys. Come and eat from this tree. Eat of this fruit and you can know things that God won't tell you. You need to recognize that innate in man is knowledge. Let man be the center. It's called humanism. And humanism began to sweep through the age. And guess who became the great obstacle to it? the dunces. So they were stuck with a pointy hat in the corner of the classroom. Anyone who would dare stick Jesus at the center of all learning. So that's why I have a book called The Bold Return of the Dunces. Let's get some dunce caps on, guys. Let's get back to the way it's supposed to be. I have a, I have a passion for it. In fact, I think a couple of the guys from the front of that book are sitting in this audience right now. They, they have a special kinship with that book. The return of brave-hearted, purposeful, straightforward discipleship for every Christian alive. Imagine if every Christian was discipled. 
was actively growing in Jesus Christ. The return of manly, I love that word, unabashed, unashamed, undiluted, love-infused, supremely creative gospel tearing, dismantling the presiding post modern and seeker-sensitive ideas by demonstrating the power of God's historic methodology for winning the lost. The return of manly strength, nobility, and spiritual growl to the men of God. The return of feminine strength, dignity, and spiritual purpose to the women of God. The return of the church that prays, always prays. The return of real, genuine spirit empowerment to the church of Jesus Christ, manifest in such a way that it is evident and obvious to all that are honest that God truly and authentically is sealing the message with his demonstration of power. I know there are little clouds of smoke and puffs of power out there, okay? People will talk about them. However, what I am interested in, this is a sort of statement from heaven to this earth where anyone that is willing to be honest would say, that was God. I remember when I heard about these leg lengthening services. I'm not against someone having their leg lengthened, okay? To be honest, if you have one leg that's a little shorter than the other, I think it's wonderful if God lengthens the leg and, and that they're even. Okay, however, think about it. If leg lengthening is the one great demonstration of God's power in this generation, what's every single person, including me, going to say? How do we know that it was different? How, how do we know that they just didn't drop their hip? In other words, there's nothing in it that gives the validity to the fact that God did that. Now, we can all be sheepish and go, oh, I'm sure maybe God did. However, I'm talking about something different here, not leg lengthenings. I'm talking about God moving in this earth in such a way where everyone, even the most stout atheist, has to stand back silenced and go, I have no explanation for that other than there's a supernatural realm at work. That's right, there is. The return of the church that deeply, affectionately, and tenderly loves one another, that gladly will suffer to serve its fellow brothers and sisters. And 11, the return of the church that is strong to give, strong to disciple, strong to pray, strong to serve, strong to be sent, strong to give answers for what they believe, strong to evangelize, strong to adopt, strong to wash feet, strong to suffer harm, and even strong to die well. Oh. How do we get from 11 to 12? We need one of you to do something about it. Isn't that, isn't that fun? In other words, what if we actually were the ones that said, okay, all right, even if no one else in this room responded, I'm willing. What if all of us did that? Now we got a whole bunch of us responding, but it isn't conditional upon someone else's response. Most of us wait for someone else to do something, and then we follow. My encouragement to you today is to not wait for someone to stand up and say, I'm willing but that you would be the one that would be willing to stand up and say, God, even if I'm the only one in this room. Now, if all of us do that, we have ourselves a church, guys. We have ourselves the juggernaut, the unstoppable force in this generation. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The return of the 11 men, the ache to see the real thing walk this earth once more. Now, I picked these 11 guys purposely, okay? There are a lot more than this, and this list is going to seem strange to some of you as I go through it, but you'll understand as I go through it. C.T. Studd. Now, how... I've always longed for that name to be my own, uh, and if none of you knew about it and I could just somehow act like I just showed up on the scene, change my birth certificate to be C.T. Studd, that has to be one of the greatest names of all time, and what, what's amazing also is he was a manly man, too. So he had that name, and he also lived up to that name. George Washington, William Wallace, Leonard Ravenhill, William Tyndale, George Mueller, William Booth, 
John Prane Hyde, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, William Wilberforce. There's some names that you may recognize, some names you don't. Now, there's very, because some of you are like, what does that collection have to do with each other? I mean, some are, uh, they're all about the, the evangelism of the lost. Some of them were missionaries. Some of them were political leaders. It's like, what is that? What I'm saying is, this is what's missing. Each one of these guys represents something in Isaiah chapter 3. And when you lose what these guys represent, what happens is a nation falls. When you have what these guys represent, what you have is that a nation thrives. In our church, I desire these 11 men. Now, you don't need to start. I would, of course, need to be CT, right? (laughs) You don't need to call yourselves by these names. It's the attribute of what they represent. They represent the fullness of the body of Christ. God expressing himself in and through a people. And we are a microcosm, a small picture of that. And I believe God wants to build this in our midst. So that which has gone missing, the 11 have departed. So I'm going to read you from Isaiah 3. The 11 strengths of Israel, do we know how far we have fallen? Isaiah 3, it's talking about the judgment that is coming upon Israel. It is a just judgment. They are deserving of this judgment. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem, from Judah, the supply and the support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the prudent and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the eloquent orator. There's 11 things that are removed. And God is going to take away what's called the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. And what did he describe those things as? Manhood. When the men are removed, when the strengths of Israel are taken out, well, there's not much left. The loss of the 11 strengths, the entire supply and support of bread and water in Israel. C.T. Studd, the mighty man. The mighty man was the first one that was removed. To have a man who boldly will stand for truth. He doesn't care about political correctness, but he's marked by love. He's marked by kindness, but he also will let it fly. And he will say exactly what needs to be said, even with a good sense of humor. That's C.T. Studd. George Washington, the man of war. George Washington's always been one of my favorite characters. It always feels awkward. I used to study American history, and I used to teach constitutional law. I know a lot about George Washington, extremely fascinating character. My mom, for one of my gifts that I had uh, growing up, I don't know if I ever told you guys this or not, but uh, I had a gift that she gave me for one Christmas, and it was the cologne that George Washington used, not the same bottle of it, but the same, uh, you know, whatever mixture it was. So I had like George Washington's cologne. It's like, this is what he smelled like when he walked around. Yeah, uh, so they... I don't know if they have, like, the uh, cologne for William Wallace, but that would, that would be, if any of you know how to find that, it's probably uh, it's a body odor is what it was. <laughs> William Wallace, the judge. Leonard Ravenhill, the prophet. William Tyndale, the prudent. George Mueller, the elder. William Booth, the captain of 50. John Prane Hyde, the honorable man. Hudson Taylor, the counselor. George, Charles Spurgeon, the skillful artisan. William Wilberforce, the eloquent orator. I could go through each one of these and break down their lives and show you the qualities of what I'm speaking of here. However, that's not the real point of the message is to introduce you to 11 different characters. It's to show you that God expresses his nature uniquely through different sorts of personalities, different sorts of callings. In other words, a lot of us have the notion that God can only use the pastor. God can only use the missionary. 
God can only use this, when in actuality, God uses each of us uniquely when we allow him to breathe through us. Our job is to yield and say, yes, God, for such a time as this. I mean, I, to say that one of us is going to be called to be a George Washington is almost hard to fathom. But I'm just saying, hey, in our midst, we need that sort of dignity and strength. I remember hearing about uh, Gubernur Morris, who was sort of a prankster in the Constitutional Convention. And uh, so he was always laughing, and George Washington was always serious. And uh, Gubernur Morris was over with the, I picture it being sort of like a, uh, what do you call those little gatherings where they have hors d'oeuvres? But uh, one of those types of things where all the guys in the Constitutional Convention are standing around, and Gubernur Morris says, Uh, you guys are always afraid of George Washington. Why don't you just come up to him and slap him on the back? How come none of you ever do that? One of them said, I'll give you 10, I don't know if it was $10, but I'll give you $10 if you do it. And that would have been a lot of money, right? And so he's like, I'll do it. And so he walks across the room, slaps George Washington on the back, goes, hey, George. And George Washington gives this withering look down at Governor Morris and says, and he just sort of falls apart and, and goes uh, shrinking violets back his, his way back to the corner. Is like, I'll never do that again. So he did get $10. But there was such a dignity and a strength in this man that everyone felt it in the nation. Every one of the leaders even knew. You don't slap him on the back, guys. He's our leader. And the respect that this man commanded, it's like, I want that back in the church of Jesus Christ. What is that? Where's George Washington today? The sort of guy that everyone in the nation goes, let's get him. Then they ask him to be the president. Now, what does he say? No way. He flat out declines. He doesn't want to have any ruler, ruling power. He's done. He just went through the Revolutionary War. He doesn't have any interest in that. So what do they do? They come back with a bigger party begging him to consider. George Washington, with his arm being twisted, became the president of the United States. That's the sort of leadership that I'm interested in seeing rise up in the church again. So I'm not going to go through any more of these. That could be a message in and of itself. We could just call it the 11 men. When the 11 strengths are removed from Israel, foolishness will reign. When you take out this strength, what happens? Well, the Bible tells us. The The next verse in Isaiah says, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. You can make your own conclusions of how close to this we have come. In other words, the major players in leadership in our country are not even political. They are young kids that own big companies. And they are controlling most of what is taking place socially in our country. We have a massive swing away from Judeo-Christian values, not just to a post-Christian point, but to an anti-Christian point. As far as I'm concerned, this is the most exciting time to be alive. I know, some of you weren't expecting that statement. This is the hour that you want to be on earth. You don't want to be on earth when everything's easy. You want to be on earth when God needs to raise up men and women. You see, the grace of God is available. He just is looking for someone. He's like, hey, guys, I need someone to bring testimony, to confess my power, to confess my truth. Hey, I want to be the church that he finds ready. An age of foolish manhood. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that's us. 
so I'm going to go back and I'm going to share with you just a little quick tidbit of my life to show you sort of the tenor of what has been set in our culture. There is a pressure within us as men to fit in and to look a certain way to other men. It's ridiculous, I have to admit, but it's there. So I'm in junior high, and uh, I was too good of a student in junior high. Did you know that if you're too good of a student, things go bad for you in junior high? And so I did a test in spelling, and uh, the average student was around a level three, and I was level 21 in spelling. And the next closest, there was another girl that was like 17, and then the next one was like three or four. And so, ooh, this wasn't good. And so everyone's sort of looking over at me like, whoa. And I'm like, I felt like I was so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And so what I started doing is I started answering questions incorrectly on purpose. Mm-hmm. I did that. And here's what, what happened. Now, some of you could say, well, that's harmless. I'm sure it was just for good social reasons. You could fit in better. No, it did more than that. I did fit in better. I actually started getting sent to the principal's office. I became the, what was the term, the class clown? It wasn't that. They had a name for it. They voted at the end of the semester the best sense of humor in junior high. And guess, guess who won that? I did. Because I was a fool. I began to behave as a fool in junior high because a fool could be popular. But a smart guy, not so much. And so what happened, and the reason I call it this, capsizing intelligence. My intelligence quotient dropped. When I got to high school, I actually tried to change things around and to actually get good grades again, and I couldn't. My brain had some kind of fog over it. It's like I had invited something in, and I was now an official idiot. You know, my story, even intellectually, is rather fascinating because it, had, it was like a spiritual battle for me. When I went to college, I had like a 3.0, 3.1. It's terrible, but it's not that good. Okay? My SATs my S and my ACTs were mediocre average, just enough to get me into college. Right? But I went from being sharp as a tack to being dumb as a, I don't know, you guys would have to give me some metaphor there, a rock. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> a little smarter than that. Uh, and so I literally went through a season, when I was in college, I went through a season of complete re-education. I started over, and that's a whole story in and of itself, but I've tasted it. I know what's happening to our culture because I walked through it trading in the birthright for a bowl of laughter. I would rather fit in with the crowd than rise up and impact my generation. Hey, I don't want to stand out. I don't want anyone to notice me in the wrong way. So therefore, I'm going to choose idiocy instead. That's what I literally did. So I understand this. I felt it personally. My actual wrestling match to gain back my brain was a spiritual battle so that I can be groomed by the Spirit of God to impact this world. This is dangerous stuff. The acceptance of mediocrity, subsiding into silence and allowing defeat to reign. As we look around, we begin to understand that to rise up and to be the strong Christian doesn't get you popularity points. If you're looking for 
public approval ratings, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to get them by walking the narrow way of the cross. And so therefore, if you're looking for political position, this is a bad choice. Because your political ratings are measured by how people think about you. And yet, as a Christian, our choice cannot be how others consider us, if others like us, if others like our decisions. Our choices need to be made for a public approval rating in heaven of one. What does he think? Is it in agreement with what he desires for my life? And that will change the world. But where are the men who are willing to walk that way and to make decisions for that audience of one? For my people are foolish. Mm -hmm. They have not known me. They are sottish, which means foolish, children. And they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. That statement is so flabbergasting. Think about this. They are wise to do evil. Most of us in here know how to do evil. We do. Now, hopefully we're, trying, we're not doing it. But the point is, we are wise to do it. We have understanding of how to do it. We could do some evil today and be really good at it. But to do good, we have no knowledge. So how do we live the other direction? How do we please God? I, I, I don't know. I got a blank there. You see, discipleship has almost been completely lifted out of Christianity to the point where we have this basic understanding that Jesus died for us, and if we turn to him, repent and believe, we're saved. Praise God for that. However, we don't have knowledge for how to live in this body to please him. This is where the battle is. You see, we have a generation that has not been trained, and they're wise to do evil, but they have no knowledge in how to do good. The return of sanity, the re-education of the man. So I have a passion to see us as a church become strong. Not wise in doing evil, wise of evil, but having a true knowledge of how to live the life that God has called us to live. A church that is discipled to live with strength and power to showcase Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. When the men return, dot, 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 the little boys once again have a pattern. So, if you look at what is the pattern for young boys today, we have athletes. Back when I was younger, uh, athletes were of a different caliber, a different character. There was a certain weight and responsibility that athletes had. Now, I'm not saying that some of them don't still know this, but it's very different. The athletes that we applaud today, don't, most of them don't have any character. And they live totally for self. They live with absolute vanity. I, I remember I was uh, at a, a big rally. The theme was abstinence. And Les and I were asked to speak of this thing. It was this huge thing, and we had this famous uh, NBA basketball player that was abstinent. That was his claim to fame. And so he walks up onto the stage, and the first thing he does, he says, okay, all you girls, I know you want to take pictures. Why don't you come on up, and let's get those out of the way right now. It's like, for me, that is revolting. That does not stand in here. 
We are not about us. We are not about our vanity. We're not about showcasing what we can do. We're about Jesus Christ and showcasing what he can do. And yet this is entered into the church of Jesus Christ in such a way where no one edits it. No one even says, That's, is there something wrong here? I mean, everyone just went along with it. People, girls were running up on the stage to get pictures at this point. Girls. It wasn't like he invited me up. He invited all the girls up because he knew that the girls wanted pictures with him. And this is pathetic. That's what I'm thinking the whole time. Of course, I didn't say anything about it. I didn't stand up and go, Ichabod! That was, was that from last week? Uh, so you'd have to be hanging around last week to understand. That means the Spirit of the Lord has departed. Taught you a little Hebrew there. So I'm going to go through, when the boys have a pattern, what happens in the church? You begin to generationally change the operation. So the return of a, the boy of unpeach, unimpeachable honor, not just a well-mannered boy, but a truly noble boy who behaves with regal honor and heavenly decorum. Number two, the return of the boy of uncompromising restraint. Not just a boy who can treat a girl with respect, but preserve her with his every thought. The return of the boy ever prepared for disaster. Not just a boy scout, but one ready to endure the most extreme privations, difficulties, and sufferings with adroitness and enthusiasm. The return of the boy of unflinching gospel force. Not just a boy who prays the salvation prayer, but one who brings the full gospel to the nations and refuses to stop preaching even when threatened with death. The, boy of, the return of the boy fit for battle. Not just a boy who looks sculpted in the mirror, but one built strong and fit to tackle the most formidable obstacles of physical challenge. The boy skilled for every task. Not just a boy who knows how to use his iPhone, but one that is built to problem solve and practically help in any and every situation. Number seven, the return of the boy who knows what it means to be a man. Not just a boy who understands the distinctions of maleness, but one who fully understands and embraces the extraordinarily difficult calling of heavenly manhood. The return of the boy who yearns for the low seat. In every situation, he delights to find the low spot, the little position, knowing that the world is changed through humble servants and not through proud despots. Number nine, the return of the boy with the sixth sense for the stinkiest sinners. And with a smile in his soul, he sets out to win them for Christ, knowing that there is no greater testimony than when the most notorious sinners bend to the power of the gospel and are transformed before the world that has always known them as the dirtiest of scoundrels. Number 10, the return of the boy who wears out floorboards on his knees, for he knows how to pray, and not just dinner prayers or prayers pleading for help on his math test, but he knows how to heed the Spirit and yield to the burden of God for the lost, the dying, the hurting, and the needy around him. Number 11, the return of the boy who is implacable. That's a good word. He is immune to mockery. Oh, immune to mockery, impervious to ridicule, and deaf to the booze of a world that loves darkness more than light. In fact, watch his face in the moment of trial when the world turns against him and you will see a wry smile crease his face and a twinkle of thrill and light in his eyes. He is built for such a time as this and he knows it. Okay, guys, you have to admit, when we see that return in the church, how about in our boys? Could you imagine if that list marked the boys in this church? I mean, to me, that's one of the most exciting, most thrilling thoughts that could ever go through my brain. That is what I want to see. So when people say, so, you know, is the leg lengthening enough for you? No, that is what I want to see. The power of God demonstrated in this way, where literally these moral agents known as us showcase the glory of God 
I'm all for a leg lengthening and getting balanced. Don't get me wrong. And I'm all for dead people rising. I'm all for multiplying fishes and loaves. I'm all for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm saying the greatest testimony the church has to give is the fact that we live fully for Jesus Christ, demonstrating Christ, and we love one another. That is the sign of our discipleship. That is the key trigger that shows the world and proves to the world. The other stuff is the gravy. But if we are missing the behavioral power to actually live as we are called to live, well, who cares if we have signs and wonders if we're a bunch of idiots? Let's showcase Jesus Christ. The great return. Return is a huge concept in Scripture. And so the foretelling of the great return of the remnants. You know that there is a telling in the Bible that there is going to be a great returning unto God. So I'll read you about it. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is where we are at. You see, we are being stirred. Even this morning, I, know, I don't know how, what goes on inside of other people. I've only lived in my own body, okay? I know what goes on inside of me and there is something that whenever I brush close against this idea, it moves me. Reminds me why I'm here. It blows away clouds, you know, of the temporal issues that I'm currently facing. It's like, well, what about this? How are we going to pay for this? Well, what about that? There's all sorts of temporal noise. And it can oftentimes steer us away from recognizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's right. I'm here for something much bigger. All right, God, here I am. Use me. Send me. My hands are now your hands. These eyes your eyes. This mouth, your mouth. You can speak whatever you want through me. This heart, your heart. Burden it to carry your burdens, your griefs. This mind, your mind, and may it think your thoughts. This body, these feet, may it take me where you desire me to go. Christianity. Let's return to it, guys. The foretelling of the great return of the Redeemer. All of this Every single thing we're talking about is swallowed up in the great idea of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And there is a return of majesty that is guaranteed. Now, our desire is to see in this world, before his return, the majesty of God exemplified in such a way where it would call forth those that are unrepentant. And it would warm the hearts even of the saints to once again regain the passion. You see, there will come a day, just like in the days of Noah. Judgment is foretold. The rains of judgment will come. Build an ark. Well, we don't have an ark today. We have a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
Back in that day, there was a big door to the ark, and it was open. And before that judgment, anyone who was called, who heard about the coming judgment, could enter that ark. It was open to all. But the moment that judgment came, the rain started, that door was closed by God himself. Today, we have an ark, and the door is opened. And Jesus himself says, return, come unto me, because I am returning. And when he returns, that door shuts. This is our season as the church. We have one great purpose as the church, and it's to fill this season with vigor, to fill this season with yieldedness, to fill this season with prayer. For this is the season in which the harvest is. This is the season in which God is desiring to move with grace upon the hearts of men. And he says, but I need a vehicle through which to work. My chosen vehicle is you. Combined, we're called the church. But this is his chosen vehicle through which he will bring in that harvest. So if we are passive and we do nothing, that harvest is left to rot. But if we heed the Holy Spirit and we respond, then we will see the great return of the remnant And with that remnant, with great joy, we'll be satisfied in the great return of our Redeemer. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This is what I've done for decades. I don't know that I would have ever called it this personally, but I'm going to call it this for us. Asking for the desiderio. You see, the Apostle Peter was often noted to cry. Saints didn't know what was going on inside the guy, but when a cock would crow, he would cry, and that made sense to them. But then other times, this big hulking fisherman, even in Christian history, he's known as a huge man, would just sob. You could see his chest heaving. And one day, a bold Christian came up to him and said, uh, Peter, why are you crying? Desiderio Domini. I dearly long to be with Jesus. We need that. Because you could translate that in all sorts of different forms. How about this? Because I dearly long for this lost and dying world. To know Jesus. You see, when you know Jesus, you gain his heart. It's not just the heart to escape this world, because many of us have felt that at times, usually in the harder moments, if you haven't noticed. It's in those difficult moments where you're like, Jesus, come, get me out of here. (laughs) However, Paul longed to get out of here too. And yet he says, but for your sake, I'm staying, guys. You see, to live is Christ. I still have the fullness of Christ while I'm here, but oh, to die is gain. But for your sake, I'm still here. 
And what do we say? For your sake, brethren, lost and dying world, church at large, I'm still here because God has a purpose for this body, this life, right here, right now. So yes, Lord, though I long to be with you, I want to have your desiderio for this lost and dying world too. May they know Jesus. May they be found in him. May they see what I have seen. May they be changed the way I have been changed. That's what moves us because we love him. We need a desiderio for him and a desiderio for that which burdens him. Craving the stuff of heaven. So as we close, I want to pray very specifically for that. This is supposed to be a vision for our church. In other words, this isn't Eric Ludy's burden. This is our burden. This is the church of Jesus Christ's burden. My job in a moment, in a time like this, is to merely articulate that which is meant to be shared. It's not meant to be, I say, like, oh, Eric, and I'll pray for you with your burden. It's like, no, 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 then this means nothing. Because I had the burden before all this. I'm bringing this out so that it can cause a similar pulse within us. A reviving, a returning to greater strength. Some of you have been caught red-handed in this past week, living for yourself and forgetting the bigness of your call. It's very common to have happen. Very easy to have happen in North America. Very easy. If we were in the eye of a hurricane right now, did you know that our prayer life would be sharper? There would have statistically been far more prayer this last week than we did have. Why is that? That's sort of strange. Takes a hurricane. Shouldn't. In other words, we should be living as if a hurricane is striking somewhere all the time. And there are lost and dying souls that will perish. You see, this is the movement of God within us. And there's something wrong with us. Let's just admit it and move forward. We are heartless when it comes to the things of heaven on our own. But we have a God who desires to give us his heart. It's going to be heavy at times. And at times you wish you didn't have his heart. Any of you that have ever gotten his heart know what I mean. There are times you wish you could turn back and say, God, I know I asked for that heart, but could you take it out just for the night? It's sort of like having a newborn baby. Uh, Walter and Rachel are experiencing this. I wanted to stick Hudson back in uh, and get a good night's sleep. <laughs> it was like, come on. Uh, It was fine when he was in there, but I can't stick him back. And the same is true with getting God's heart. Once you have it, you have it. It's not the easy way to live. Oh, but it's the right way to live. And it's so fulfilling because it draws you into a fellowship of his suffering. And you truly know Jesus. Let's ask for that. Father, we yearn for the returning the returning of the remnant unto you with fervor and fire and the fear of God upon us, that we would yield our lives to you afresh and say, God, forgive us for our mediocrity, for our self-centeredness, for living shallow when deep waters were available to us. Lord, we crave more of you. And we desire to showcase in and through our lives more of you. 
Come, Holy Spirit, and change us. Fill us. Alter us. Move us. Do not pass over our church and find another one. Please, stop here. Equip us. Empower us. And mobilize us into action. Lord, teach us how to pray. Give us your heart that we would pray your prayers, your burdens, carry your griefs, think your thoughts. Lord, we ask for the desiderio, the deep, often painful longing for Jesus, for the return of the majesty of Jesus to this earth, for the lost and the dying, to see the glory of our God made manifest in this earth. We ask that you would burden us with that, the same thing that burdened Peter. And even if it leaves, leads us to sobs and deep, heartfelt wails, we say, yes, Lord. We want to be the vehicles through which you work. Build this body into the body of Christ showcase yourself in and through this church. Give us wisdom to move forward and to take these next steps. We submit to you, Lord, as the head of this church. And unless you build this house, we would labor in vain. It's in the great name of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we ask this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.